My name is Matt Levy OAM. I'm a proud Paralympian, and you're listening to the Pro Sports Podcasters. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome back to the Pro Sports Podcasters. My name is Corbett Ron. You guys know me as Kobe. And today I've got a Paralympian with me, an MVP, somebody who's been in a, a number of aspects that have to do with both sport and technology. And we're going to get right into it with Nick Gonchin. Nick, how you doing? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic, buddy. Fantastic. I'm going I'm to get right into it. So you've been to how many Paralympics now? I just went to my second in Tokyo there. Okay, okay. And you're kind of a standout on the Canadian team, right? Yeah, I guess, I guess you can say that. Depends <laughs> who you ask, I suppose. <laughs> I, th- I think if you ask most people, I'm looking over some of your accolades here, and it's it's pretty significant. So, so you play with the Toronto Rolling Raptors? I did, yeah. I Actually, we just moved out west uh, recently, so so no longer with the Raptors, now with the Calgary team, actually. And that's still a Division One team. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. It's just a different club right now. Now, what's a season there like? How long does it span? How many games do you play? How many teams are there? So, I guess I mean NWBA, maybe sixteen teams in Division One that compete in the finals. Okay. This that's at a club level, so that that runs just your typical basketball season, which is kind of like October to I don't know April ish. Okay, so it is a full length season. Yeah, and so because I play internationally as well for the Canadian team, uh, that season's actually over the summertime. So basically, as the regular season finishes, our international competition season starts. So this is a full year thing for you? Yeah, there's there's not much time off. Maybe you get a month, odd month here or there. September's usually pretty free because it's kind of in between there. End of the competition, international competition. But now with, uh, with everything that's been going on with the world, the... Uh, the scheduling of the tournaments have been modified pretty drastically. So a tournament that we would have had at the end of August this year is going to be in November, which stretches our season. Basically, yeah, there's no there's no breaks this year. <laughs> okay. And look, looking yeah. at some of your accolades here, I'm going to go from oldest to newest. And so you're, you're MVP at the 2013 Men's Under-23 World Wheelchair Basketball Championship. Yeah. You were MVP at the 2014 Junior National Wheelchair Basketball Championship. You were named Wheelchair Basketball Canada's Junior Athlete of the Year in 2014, named to be an All-Star at the 2018 CWBL National Championships, All-Star for the 2018 NWBA National Championship Division I Toronto Rolling Raptors, and now you've been named to Team Toyota in 2019. Not to mention two, two Paralympics in there. Like That's, that's ridiculous, buddy. So what, what, got you, <laughs> what got you into wheelchair basketball to begin with? Well, I was an able-bodied athlete for, for most of my, I don't know, adolescence, I suppose. So at, at age 15, I was actually playing basketball, uh, able-bodied basketball, kind of always been short. So bounce stop to let the defenders pass me as I bounce stop, my leg breaks. Oh. And uh, they found out that I had bone cancer, actually. 
you know, you know, like you, you hurt yourself playing sports and it's kind of just the tax you pay as an athlete. And, yeah. Um, yeah. That's all I thought it was. And then we, yeah, we went to, uh, we went to the doctors and yeah, they knew pretty much immediately what it was. It, it had already moved or progressed that far. Now, ho- so, hold on, hold on. Yeah. There was no indications beforehand of anything. So I had some overuse injuries, but nothing uh, irregular or abnormal or nothing that you would even like look twice at. However, there was an overuse injury in my knee called Oshkosh-Ladders, which is essentially there's this tendon that crosses your knee. It shaves the little pieces off and it kind of uh, causes a little bit of inflammation just just beneath your patella or your, your kneecap there. And so I was diagnosed with that about three months prior to, to breaking my leg and they found a fracture on my fibula, which is the small leg or the small bone that it's kind of a supporting bone in your lower lower half of your leg. Yeah, the, the other one, not the femur. Yeah, exactly. The other one. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a fracture and they never, uh, the message never got to us until I broke my leg. Yeah, three months later. And then it turns out that fracture was what the beginning of what they actually found. Okay. So how long did you spend in cancer treatment? So I did nine months of chemo treatments before surgery and then following surgery, another five. So about 14 months in total. Okay. So you, you come out of that, your life's completely changed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it wasn't supposed to be that way. Uh, going into surgery. So, uh, three days prior to surgery, you have a meeting with the surgeon. They, they discuss, you know, what, what you've been talking about, what, how the surgery is going to go, blah, blah, blah. But they threw us a little bit of a curveball. So they were supposed to only, um, or I guess the goal, maybe not supposed to, that's the wrong word, but the, the goal was to just remove the fibula. Hopefully the chemo, you know, takes care of most of the cancer cells and then you just remove the fibula. So I would still be able to, you know, walk regularly and still play sports and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah, 72 hours before the surgery, they told us that the cancer had spread actually up the bone. Uh, all the soft tissue cells ha- were, were killed from the treatment, but the actual cancer that was in the bone had spread up and down to a point where it was affecting this nerve that crosses your knee. So they gave me the option, basically, you know, we could continue the path that we discuss, remove the fibula and go about our way. However, the chance of it coming back was quite high above 50%. Okay. And I wouldn't have any use of my lower limb because the nerve would be actually severed through the surgery. So they're like, we could amputate less chance of it coming back significantly less chance. And, um, you're already, you know, like your knee's already not going to work. So we would use a prosthetic. Obviously, this is not something I even looked up or even thought was a possibility. But that's where we're at. And then they basically made me make a decision on the spot. So, but the but the decision you made was was strictly uh, cosmetic, basically. Sort of, yeah. I mean, it was functional in a way. One, I didn't want to go through it again. That was the biggest thing. It was yeah, like you were kind of. It felt like you were at the end of the journey, right before surgery. At least that's how I felt. So it was like, how do I? have this not happen again, you know? And if that means cutting it off, cut it off. And that's kind of where I was at. It was all kind of a math equation in my head. Okay. So you skip forward. Does somebody approach you about playing wheelchair basketball or did you search it out yourself? High school gym class. So we, we had a week long, uh, try it, you know, kind of wheelchair basketball session. So every single day, about an hour, end of the week, the coach that was helping helping out with the wheelchair basketball for that week uh, was the coach of the Regina team, which is in Saskatchewan, which is where I grew up. And um, he came up to me. I was still bald. I had no eyebrows. It was pretty obvious. I went through something. I was wearing, I was the only one wearing sweats in class, kind of had a little swag. Yeah. He's like, Hey, I, I don't know what's going on in your life, but you should come and try wheelchair basketball. And I was like, absolutely not. 
I have absolutely no interest in playing basketball in a wheelchair. <laughs> I remember telling it to his, to his face. And uh, anyways, he didn't give up on me. He, he basically badgered me into it, told me to bring a friend. I brought my brother, came out that next Thursday. And uh, yeah, just absolutely fell in love with it. And that was it. Okay. So how fam- like how similar is it for you when you play wheelchair basketball than it was when you played able body basketball? I would say that it shares a ton of similarities. So th- the rules are practically the same. Wheelchair basketball, you're allowed a double dribble versus able body, you can't. Um, but as far as like the height and the size of the court, everything's the same. So the way that the pieces move, I guess, or the players move uh, is very similar. The only difference being there's no lateral movement. So I would say that's the biggest thing. So, you mm-hmm. know, like you can run plays in able body basketball and yeah, I can get it past the defender. It doesn't matter how big he is. It might take me a little bit longer, but I can get past them. Yeah. Wheelchair basketball, you're not allowed to leave the court. You're not allowed to go out of bounds. So say, you know, you have a player flashing down the baseline on, on offense. I mean, if anyone gets in their way, just like if you were passing a car on the highway, you can't really get out of the way if that car is faster than you and is staying in front of you. Yeah. So just imagine that. It's like a high-paced kind of chess game. But as far as like basketball IQ, the way pick and rolls happen and stuff like that, very, very similar. Okay. Okay. So basically you're, you're removing the crossover. Yeah. Pretty and much. everything's forward motion <laughs> when it, when it comes right down to it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what counts as out of bounds? Any part of the wheelchair counts as out of bounds? Any part. Yeah. It's basically, uh, they call it, what is it? A personal advantage fall. So you can't go out of bounds because then you, the, the whole game is space. I mean, it's no different than any sport. If you think soccer, hockey, able body basketball, it's all space and how people move in space. You try to find open space. So by closing the parameters, People can control space more deliberately. So basically, I can use the sideline as a kind of like a, a shadow defender in a way because I know that person cannot go out of bounds. That's right. So my logic in defending them is very different knowing they can't go out of bounds. So they added that element to the game, which I think is really important. I mean, re- realistically, in able-bodied basketball, geometry plays a significant role as well. And it Huge. sounds like it's even greater in wheelchair basketball when it comes right down to it. Yeah, just because we're limited to forwards and backwards. We can't go left or right. Okay, so you decide to go with it, and then how how do you go from there to Division One, or like how do you get from there to the Olympics? Well, that's a good question. I don't even know. It seems like it all just happened in a flash. It was one thing I got invited to my first junior Canadian tryouts two two years after I started playing. Okay, so I was competing, and like I competed all my life up to there, and like that's what it was about. At the beginning, it was just about proving I can still beat people, I guess. I know it sounds so shallow, but like I just spent, you know, two years doing nothing physical, like just going through treatments and stuff like that. I didn't get to, I didn't get to, I don't know, beat up on people. I didn't get to do that. Like, you know, the reason that we play sports, um, you know, everyone's a little bit different, but so I started there, SAS team, I guess I started with the Regina team, played club there, played SAS, which is a provincial team. And um, I kind of like in that whole time kind of figured out how to move my chair. So that was the biggest hurdle from the beginning. Yeah. Sure. You can understand how the game works and all this, but put anyone in a wheelchair the first time they can't really move it. So you can give me, you know, you Kobe, you can give me as much space as you want, but if I can't move to that space, then, you know, who cares? Exactly. So my biggest thing and probably my biggest strength right now still is I got really, really fast before I got really good at anything else. And so space 
and time being really important in wheelchair basketball, I get extra because I'm a little bit faster than the other guy, which is why I kind of get away with being a little bit shorter, I guess, than your average guy that would play in my position. So I got invited to my, my first junior Canadian camp after that. Went to my first junior world. So I made that team 2009 in Paris, France. I remember that was my first international, like, you know, like you travel for, for basketball, you go to the States, you play in, yeah, that's, in North that's America. That's not the same thing. That's not the same no, thing. <laughs> no, it was like, holy smokes. And the other thing that shocked me was how many people play wheelchair basketball in the world. I had no, I didn't even know about the sport before I lost my leg. And I mean, there's there's a professional division in France and Italy and Germany and Spain. You know, junior worlds. There's probably 800 athletes there. Okay, so so like Europe is sort of the hotbed for it, right? Definitely. Yeah. All right, and and how old were you when you had the uh, operation? Sixteen. Sixteen. So you're looking yeah. at around it's like 18 or 19 when you start to play sort of internationally. Yeah, when I get a little bit more competitive. Yeah, around that time. And you're playing against others who have essentially been playing since birth right some yeah there's definitely lots of congenital disabilities in there yeah so do you see a significant difference between say someone who has like learned to manipulate a wheelchair from birth versus someone like yourself that that was forced to learn it later on i would say generally yes i mean more time you know the ten thousand hour rule whether you agree with it or not but more time you spend doing a certain motion or certain skill you get better at it. So yeah, absolutely. Like people that, you know, people that have been using a wheelchair since birth are definitely at an advantage and their body adapts a little bit different. So what you'll see is with a lot of people with either traumatic injuries when they were really young or congenital disabilities, their arms are really long, their upper body and their torso is a bit shorter. Their legs are real short. Their weight, like if you think about, you know, I don't know if they even think about formula one or any, like any racing sports is all power to weight ratio yeah so to move a wheelchair fast you kind of have to be in the sweet spot so i find that a lot of people that you know had had injuries early on and their body adapted to like actually moving in a chair they tend to have like like we have this one guy that's maybe five foot two if you stretched him out he uses a wheelchair to get around but his wingspan's like six nine that's crazy yeah it's very (laughs) weird yeah, that's that's insane. Yeah, insane. And it's super <laughs> advantageous for basketball, as you would know, you know, having lots of reaches. <laughs> I mean, it's great to have. Okay, and how do fouls work? So, I mean, it's very similar. So, like, body fouls would be more like chair fouls. Okay. Um, and then, I mean, the same if you're getting whacked on the arm, if you're going, you know, up for a layup. What I would say, it, it is way more aggressive than you would picture. There's a lot of contact that doesn't get called. Um, okay. The game has changed in the last, I don't know, five year, five to 10 years. The game's got way faster. Now you've got guys, you know, maybe average speed during a game would have been, I don't know, between 15 and 20 kilometers an hour. People are running. Yeah. Uh, are rolling. Uh, and now, I mean, we're up 20s to 30s. People are like moving real fast down the court, which means, you know, when they collide, it's, it's significant. a bit more significant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the game's the game's adapted, so they don't call that stuff anymore. So I would say, you know, a really hard hit, maybe on your back wheel or something like that, something dangerous. That would be a clear cut foul. Other than that, it's basically the same. Okay, and is it a result of technology that's in, that's uh, improved? Uh, I think both. Yes, I mean, part of it's technology. Part of it is you look at any sport. Like how how does the you know fifty meter sprint 
in swimming, how do people keep getting faster? That's right. It's partly technology, but it's partly like just people are pushing the envelope more than they ever have. So I would say that it's kind of, let's say 60, 40 split, 60 being tech, because we've decreased weight of chairs. We're using carbon fiber now, yeah. aluminum versus metal. We're strapped into our chairs now too. Like there used to not be any straps. Okay. So the chairs literally become part of your body. So like, as I fall down, my chair is connected to me. So it all comes and it makes it that much easier to kind of move around and like, I don't know, move in fluidity. So I would say, yeah, 60, 40, let's go with that. I know that was a long winded answer for that. No, no, understandable. But so do you own your chairs? Yes. Yeah. So, so what's, uh, what's the cost of admission to play? This? <laughs> yeah, it depends, I guess, what kind of chair you're getting into. So I fully like have a customized chair to me, which is ideal. Just like, you know, any port sort of equipment you buy a bike, you want it to be customized to you. Yeah. Um, I'd say between the cheaper end, five to seven grand, a higher end, a chair like mine, like fully customized up to 14. Wow. It's a small used car. Yeah. It's wow. Expensive. So yeah, that's, that's comparable to competitive bicycling. Yeah. That's comparable sure. to a high end goalie in hockey. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, it can be. Yeah. Right? Like that's, that's what you're looking yeah, at. You it's, not, it's not, in, it's not inexpensive. No. It's absolutely not. Now in Canada, I mean, every country's different, but in Canada, how do they select the Paralympic wheelchair team? So, I mean, we have our, it's super similar to really any NSO or national sports organization in, in Canada. The, you hold open tryouts. Uh, you have the invitation only tryouts. There's a okay. pool of athletes that we have. And so I think the aim is generally about a week a month. We try to get together whether it's the direct team that's competing in the summer or if it's the extended group up well the extended is usually about 20. okay and then from that 20 they they pretty much bring it down to 12 kind of shortly before the competition to keep people hungry all right and when did you find out that like the first time you made the team so for the men's team which i find like it was significant for the junior team but everything was just significant it was like holy this is all moving really fast crazy but i remember the first disappointment one was 2012 london paralympics okay i didn't make the team and i, I thought i was really close i knew i was on the cusp but like and pretty much anyone can attest to this and this is not me making an excuse or anything but for a new person to take someone off the team and it still exists this way you can't just be as good as that person yeah yeah yeah. because there's the, the there's a blend the fit right yeah like you need the fit and you need to be in my opinion like i don't know 10 15 better than who you're replacing to okay. make it legit, like to have a legitimate reason to take them over someone that say has experience and has that chemistry piece that you just talked about. And like, so I felt like I didn't have that part of it. I didn't have, you know, I might've been had the physical part of it, but I didn't have that. I don't know. Not that I wasn't a team player, but like, I didn't take that aspect as seriously back then as I do now. So that was my first like ugh, disappointment. And in 2013, I made the team uh, officially, which was after that, those Paralympics, which they won gold. Of, of course. course they did. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, that was, it felt like the beginning, I guess is how I would put it. It was kind of like, okay, I've been working towards this now for 2013. So I've been playing for four or five years now. Competitively, I moved to the States to play. Okay. I had a varsity scholarship in uh, just outside Chicago at the University of Illinois. And yeah, so I was competing there for two years. So it was always the goal, you know, it sounds conceited, but like I was expecting it. I was always expecting it. Now, what's the length of career like? Like, so for instance, on Team Canada, 
like how old is the oldest player and how young is the youngest player? So I think our oldest player right now is about 43. So on the older side, and there's yeah. reasons for that. And then on the younger side, 18, 19. So you can have a very long career. Oh, yes. Yeah. Part of it, I feel like, is you don't get good coaching until later on in life. Okay. So like I didn't start getting really like high performance coaching in a wheelchair basketball until I was in university. Okay. And so because I think there's a delayed start to like the high performance coaching aspect of it, I think there's a delayed finish as well. And then, yeah, just like generally, I don't know how much you know about para sport, but it seems like para sport careers are a little bit longer than, than able-bodied counterparts. Yes. I and mean, depending on the sport itself, but yeah, a lot of them, can, a lot of them can be. Mm-hmm. Now, what did you study? My first degree was in biomechanics. Okay. Um, and then, so I did that at the university of Illinois and then I moved to Germany for a year and was doing some, you know, side classes. And then I came back to Canada and did my master's in exercise physiology. All right. Um, kind of had like, I don't know, I thought I was going to be a physiologist, kind of help high performance athletes. That was kind of where my head was at. And then uh, decided that was not the course of action I wanted to go. So I went back to school for orthotics and prosthetics, the fabrication of orthotics, prosthetics. I wear a prosthetic, kind of made sense, like working with my hands. And then that turned out to be less fulfilling than I thought it was going to be as well. And um, so I found myself kind of looking for like something else. So what I ended up in and what I've been doing for the last couple of years is I'm in the financial services industry. Uh, Not what I thought I'd be into, but it's so similar to sports that it just made sense from like the absolute first second I started, uh, as opposed to these other things that I was trying to chase something. I don't know. I just, just chase something that's fulfilling, just like I find sport. And I found that it was, you know, everything was empty or there was very few positions, you know, like, yeah, anyways. And so, yeah, I've been in the financial industry for about two years now and absolutely loving it. Yeah. So it sounds like you went from industries where you would be a facilitator to an industry where you're more of a competitor. Exactly. Yeah. That'd probably be the biggest, the biggest difference is more goal orientated versus, you know, like prosthetics, people come in, you make a prosthetic, it either fits or fit doesn't fit. I don't get to see the people. I don't get to see that moment when they try on their first leg. That was to me, like one of the reasons I got into it. Yeah. Exercise physiology, again, like you're the back end. You have, you maybe play a small part in, in, in rehabilitation and that kind of stuff. But then how many jobs are there available for that kind of stuff? That's right. Like That's very right. Very few, very few. And it's super competitive. And, uh, you know, the saying, everybody asks for experience, but no one wants to give you any. Of course. I kind of found myself in one of those situations. This episode is brought to you by Kettlebell Kickboxing Canada. Get into your best shape with their comprehensive programs. So sign up now to either their basic package or warrior package with the code PSPKB, all caps, for 15% off. Stay fit with Kettlebell Kickboxing Canada. Was basketball always it for you or were there any other sports you were interested in or that you follow? I feel like it was always basketball. I was always really passionate about basketball. Um, I played tennis competitively for a few years and I actually did gymnastics as well. My parents, we came as refugees from former Yugoslavia in 94. So I grew up in a European household. So it was mainly European sports, you know, tennis, soccer, basketball, skiing, snowboarding, that kind of stuff. But never, uh, tennis would be as close to something I was as passionate about as, as basketball, but the team aspect uh, of basketball just, it trumps everything. So you were born in Yugoslavia? Yeah. Yeah. I was born in, uh, 
in Bosnia, actually, in Sarajevo. Oh, okay. Are, are you a soccer fan? Not diehard. I do enjoy soccer. I play lots, but not super. I know we are pretty good at soccer. Yeah. As much I do know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be nice if it was all still one country. Exactly. Exceptional at soccer. Exactly. If, if not for that war, I think Yugoslavia would have won a World Cup around yeah, that time. So they were a powerhouse at that time. And then, the, of course, the country got fragmented. Yeah, it would have been interesting too from basketball standpoint. Uh, yeah, the basketball house, basketball powerhouse as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So they just had to split us up. That's what it was. It wasn't even political. It was just, <laughs> this uh, is too good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's it. We got to split these guys up. I love that country, by the way. I've been there a number of times. Uh, have you? Yeah, oh, fan, wow. fantastic. A gorgeous place, man. So it is. Uh, yeah, a hidden gem, in my opinion. Yeah. It's a shame. It's honestly a shame. I I was lucky enough to be there before and after, so I've uh, seen it. Oh, from, wow! From what both brought sides. you there? Just vacation? Or? Uh, well, my my father's from the Netherlands, and he had lived a number of places in Europe, and then just we we traveled to all all different countries in Europe many times. So it's it's always somewhere I wanted to go, and we end up going there. And my my wife had been there recently. She had never seen it, but she loved it. We were like went to Dubrovnik and such, and absolutely loved oh, sick, it. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I haven't met a person that's went there and been like, "Oh, it wasn't as good as I thought it was." Yeah, wasn't that interesting? I didn't think it was no. that beautiful. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Well, obviously, you're an asshole. So I mean, that's just what it comes down to. Yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't go there and not like it. Honestly, yeah. you can't. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then it's got the bonus of not being really, you know, European Union, so it's cheap too at this point. So it is super cheap. Yeah, I took my wife there a couple of years ago for the first time, and. You're one shocked. of my favorite places she's right? ever been to. Oh, yeah. She's like, how have I never heard of this before? Like, wow. <laughs> I guess it's maybe not the safest place to visit as a tourist, but but other than that, everything is amazing. Oh, yeah. Fan- fantastic, man. Fantastic. So let's, let's jump ahead to now. Yeah. So how many hours do you put in per week now in wheelchair basketball? How many hours do I put in? Probably close to 20. 20. 20 right now yeah i'm kind of so i moved away about six months ago from the main training center mm-hmm. uh, after tokyo happened we bought a house out here in the west and um when i was out there it was probably close to 30 but yeah we've stepped it down a little bit our, our program went from a centralized system which was basically like we were together 12 months of the year okay training um it has its benefits it also has its you know being around the same people all the time whether you love them or you don't <laughs> turns into your arguments and stuff like that sometimes. So I'm definitely liking the decentralized part of it. And yeah, yeah, about 20, I'd say pretty confidently. And you work full time? Yeah. So that's a pretty hectic schedule. Yeah, we manage though. It's good. And it kind of like it feeds both. I find my job is so transferable and my basketball career is so transferable to from one into the other. It doesn't feel like I'm doing two different things. It feels like I'm doing one thing. Okay. Okay. And you're married? Yeah. Yeah, three years now. Three years. Mm-hmm. How good does she handle it? <sighs> You'd have to ask her. <laughs> Depends <laughs> on the day, Colby. <laughs> That's, yeah, you know what? Annie's awesome. She's been really good about that. Uh, she, you know, like we met, I was in the middle of competing as we met. It was right before the 2016 Paralympics. Yeah. So she like, she got a taste for it right from the get-go. But we just had, uh, she was just asking me about a gala today. Sometime in June, I was like, ah, oh, hey, I'm sorry, I'll actually be in Italy competing. She's like, oh, for crying out loud. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. see, that, that was going to be my next question is how much travel is involved with this? 
so the last two years have been pretty pretty minimal just because of what's going on in the world but yeah. other than that it's it's quite a bit of travel like we're traveling three months of the year probably in total oh split sp- spread out a little bit but but approximately yeah that's about how many days we're away doing whatever and it's like anything else right like canada has to qualify for the paralympics yeah, that's right who's in your qualifying group so they just actually changed the changed the way that they do it but it's 12 teams at the paralympics or it was okay and you get zones so north america will have a zone south america or sorry the americas are a zone the oceanic zone which is like japan australia that kind of area eastern asia yeah then you have europe and then we have one spot in africa so basically you'll have regional qualifications so like pan am games in canada that's one of our that's to to qualify for the paralympics so last where was the last time in lima so we had to finish top three. We finished second, but essentially that's how it works. And now they just cut down it from 12 teams to the Paralympics to eight teams, Okay, which totally changes things. So we're going to have less spots in our zone, which means we're just going to have to perform better. But we have Worlds coming up in November in Dubai. To qualify for that one, we have a qualification tournament in July in somewhere in Brazil. Wow. We have to finish top four in that tournament. Yeah. <laughs> so okay so is it like most other sports when it comes to canada is are the u.s our rivals yeah 100 percent. they're the ones to beat basically yeah so they they won the last paralympics yeah they're they're very very good at basketball and is there anyone on that team that you've played with uh yeah like a lot of them i've for sure played against them like or with them when i was going to college in, yeah. or university in the states so yeah that, like i have an intimate relationship with some of them for sure the current Canadian team, is it pretty solid when it comes right down to it? Or does it look like there's some people going out, new guys coming in? Hard to say. If you asked, it's funny. So like a year and a half ago, I would have been, I would have told you definitively there's people that would, are going to step away. Yeah. But we've been, one, we've been doing better every single year. So, you know, when you see growth, it's kind of hard to step away and like, you know, the FOMO of it all. That's right. And then, uh, I mean, our culture, our team culture, I know this is like, popular social media now is like team culture and safe sport and this and that and like we've had a huge shift in the last couple years where guys are having way more fun than they used to and you know i I brought up that centralized model that was you know part of it going to decentralize not necessarily spending less time together but a little bit more deliberate yes and so right now nobody everybody's in everyone's committed for how long i couldn't tell you but when they were on the fence you know a couple years ago it's not the case anymore so whatever we're doing i think we're doing we're, we're going in the right direction. Okay. And then last question, is it like most sort of Olympic sports or Paralympic sports where you're basically forced to look for outside funding to compete at this? Um, I would say we're one of the better funded Paralympic okay. sports in Canada. Okay. 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 So is our funding good? No. Amateur sport in general, <laughs> like whether, you know, it's just not like carding, federal carding, which any athlete, Paralympic or Olympic athlete get, it's all the same. Okay. Um, is minimal. Like you couldn't live. You couldn't yeah, it's, get it's, by it's it. not enough. That's a hundred percent. No, yeah. but yeah, you know, do you know of OTP on the podium? Yes. Uh, so they started in 2008 with the, with our uh, Olympics. Olympics that happened. Yeah, exactly. And so they're a huge funding body for a, a lot of sports. We receive, I would say 80% of our funding from OTP. Okay. Uh, same thing with like wheelchair rugby. Uh, they're kind of top there with us with one of the mo- or one of the better funded Paralympic sports. Okay. Okay. So in the scheme of greater scheme of things, it's actually a 
like decent vocation to go after as far as the funding side of it goes? If you're in the Paralympics, yes. Yeah. I mean, out of your options. Let's not forget the standard's been set pretty low. Uh, it's not a pro league by any means. But if you wanted to make money, it would be better to go play pro somewhere in Europe for sure than play for a national team pretty much anywhere. Okay. Is both isn't an option? You can do both. Yeah. Lots of people double dip. It's easier. We live in such a large country and it's so separated from everywhere else. It's less, it happens less in North America. Yeah. Because, you know, like we, uh, I played in Germany for a year. So like flying back from Germany to Toronto, you know, six times a year is not that much fun. And where'd you play in Germany? In Hamburg. It's like uh, okay. the northern tip of, of Germany there. Yeah. yeah. I know. I know Hamburg. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was all right. Uh, probably if I went back, I would go to like Southern Germany. I find it's a bit more hospitable. Is there sort of a center of wheelchair basketball in Canada? Yes. In Toronto, actually at the Pan Am Game Center, just off the highway, the one that they made for that. That's where like the governing body is or whatever, basically. Yeah. So we have an office in uh, like the main office is in Ottawa, but the main, I guess, training facility and coaches are in Toronto, in Scarborough. Okay. So how often are you there? Well, I mean, I was there literally every week for the last five years, <laughs> but <laughs> now once, once a month, I go for a week. Okay. So, so the next big event is in July, basically. Yeah. So we have a tournament in Italy in June, which is kind of just like an exhibition, get some experience. And then July, we have that qualification in Brazil. Hopefully that goes well. And then yeah, November, Dubai. And then how well supported is it by the networks? If somebody wants to watch it. So, I mean, this past Paralympics was the best ever. Yeah. Generally pretty terrible. Now that's, I mean, technology's changed so much over the last 10 years that it's become so much more accessible and so much easier for people to, you know, like uh, tape and record and stream, live stream and all that. So like we yeah. usually do at any of these tournaments have some sort of live stream. The quality of it depends where we are. So like if you ask me how it's going to be in Brazil, couldn't tell you. Absolutely no idea. Okay. My okay. guess would be it might not happen, but for Dubai, for instance, which is world championships, hundred percent, everything will be, will be streamed television wise, nothing but the Paralympics get televised for wheelchair basketball. See, that's brutal, man. That's brutal. Yeah, I mean, I, I know there's a number of smaller leagues now that we've, we've been following sort of fringe sports where they're starting to use Twitch TV. They're starting to use yeah. like Facebook TV and that sort of thing to, to provide something. But you, you just don't get the same experience that you get from a network covering it. No. Right? No, no, no. Of course not. No. Like we had TSN pick up some games over the last Paralympics. So like I can, I just compare it to 2016 where it was in Brazil from when I came back and how many people actually watched and were like involved like tenfold in Tokyo after Tokyo. Wow. Like it was a massive difference. Yeah. So whatever they're doing, they're moving in the right direction. So I'm happy to hear that and feel that. And part of it, I think, was because there was no fans at the games. So they made it very – they had to make it as accessible as possible from a virtual standpoint. That's but right. We had that kind of going for us. Oh, that's cool, man. That's cool. Hopefully that continues. Hopefully that I continues so. for sure. Now, if somebody wants to follow you, do you have any social medias that you're active on? Yeah. Yeah, I use Instagram. That's probably my, my go-to. And that is? Uh, N. Gonshin, my first initial and last name. And that's it. No Twitter? No, not really. 
We'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens with Twitter over the next couple months. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we we might be losing ours too when it comes right down yeah, to it. So yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see what we'll goes see on what there, there under <laughs> good old Elon. <laughs> it could be better. It could be a million times worse. I don't yeah, know. Could be a shit show. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, awesome having you on, Nick, man. It's great talking to you, buddy. And honestly, I I was interested. I really wanted to learn a little bit more about wheelchair basketball because I got a chance to see a little bit recently. I think it actually was at the Tokyo Paralympics. And it was was pretty intense, man. It was like... Yeah, I can get it. Yeah. That's why I had to ask you about fouls because it looked to me like there were none. Like it just didn't seem like they were calling any. (laughs) Yeah, less and less every year, man. It kind of is going the opposite direction of the NBA. Where like '90s was a people were tackling each other, no problem. That's that's, that's when I love the NBA, man. Those oh that's that's the yeah. NBA I love. The, the, today's NBA, I'm just not a fan of. I'm not a fan of nothing but three point shooting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One interesting thing that we didn't talk about, I won't keep for much longer, but the classification system. Did you read anything about that? No, no. That makes it the most important part of it. Yeah, like. Okay, wait. You're talking about Paralympics in general. Yeah. Right, where you have so many points based on it. So they, they use that in wheelchair basketball? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you can't put any five people. Oh, okay. So so like so how many points are they allowed to have and then how does it work? So I think international's fourteen or fourteen and a half. I I should know, but uh, I know clubs is fifteen. I want to say it's fourteen. Fourteen points. And I take up four and a half of that. So it's a pretty substantial amount. So you take up a lot. A lot. So I kind of have to prove my worth on a daily basis. However, that's how we keep it equal. That's like the equity in the sport. So like we are making a huge, huge push for able-bodied players to be able to play internationally. Because why not? I don't see any difference functionally between, say, me, a fully functional like lower leg amputee to someone that has two legs. They're better than me. Take my spot. I think more athletes is better. And people generally have an issue with, that because it's the Paralympics and people with disabilities should have their, their opportunity. One, this isn't a pity party. Two, it's not recreational. And three, because of the point system, it makes no difference. The more higher class players there are, that means the more lower class players have to play. Have to be on the team, yeah. Exactly, because mathematically you can't, you can't do anything else. Yeah, we came across that in uh, Paralympic rowing. But see, that, so that made total sense yeah. to me because it's basically you know one boat. Right. There's always so much in the way of points you're allowed <laughs> yeah. to have in it. Yeah. And that was a result. But I guess with basketball, I didn't, I didn't think it was going to apply because I figure you just take the best players and put them on, but no, you still have to balance it based on the, the point system. Yeah, exactly. So it, like that adds a whole another complexity from like a substitution standpoint or like someone gets in foul trouble. Like you can't just put anybody out there. So what's the lowest point value uh, player you have on the Canadian team? Do you know? One, a class one. And so that would be like a high spinal cord injury. So the less function you have, the lower classification you are. So like high spinal cord injuries. So let's say like belly button down, they don't have function or something like that. That would be yeah. like a one or a one five generally. And then it goes up from there. So they, they don't have hip strength, nothing. Yeah. So like if you don't have core, core is the biggest thing. So yeah. if you don't have core, you're going to be on the lower end. It's all arms. Yeah. And like if, because we're strapped into our chair, the more core you have, the less you, you, you have to use your arms. So like I can I can go around the court without touching my wheels because of using my abs, you know, because everything's connected. Really, a class a class one couldn't do that because they don't have that same function, that same rotation through their core. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, oh man. See, now I now I would love to see it 
through a major yeah. network because they would <laughs> yeah, have all that. that like, yeah, right. Exactly. That's and right. They would all, they have all the graphics and such of each player and the levels and, and such yeah. and explain it better because yeah, no, I, you surprised me there. I, I didn't even think about asking about it because I, I honestly didn't think that was a factor, but no, that's, yeah, I find, yeah, I find that's something that people don't know about. And that's, I mean, it's a huge part of it without it. That, I mean, the sport would look completely different. It would just be people like me playing. It's like uh, if you look at sledge hockey, you don't have any people with spinal cord injuries playing high-performance sledge hockey. That's right. Because there's no classification system. You put your your best guys on and you have lineups. And that's exactly. It. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's cool. I'm glad you brought it up, man. I'm glad you brought yeah, it up. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Looking at that and factoring that in and such, I'm going to date myself here, but is, is, there, is there a Michael Jordan of wheelchair basketball? There, there's been a, a man compared to them. Yes, for sure there is. Pat Anderson is his name, Patrick Anderson. He's actually on my team. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so he's our 43-year-old. <laughs> oh, okay, so that, that's yeah. why he's still playing, because he's the that's Jordan. That's why he still can play at the level he does, yeah, for sure. Pat he's, Anderson. Uh, yeah, he's incredible. You should definitely check him out, or if you're, if you're listening, check him out. He's, uh, he's amazing. He's, a, he's a, a great ambassador for the sport, too, and his big thing over the last couple of years has just been... Of course, to compete and like he's got that fire, but to really try and, I don't know, get the word out there, you know, like really what we talked about, get more exposure, get people, you know, to see it and understand it and try it more than ever before. He is from Ontario, Fergus, actually. They're putting up a billboard in front of his town. He just told us yesterday, Fergus, Ontario, the home of Patrick Anderson, three-time gold medalist or something like this. I forget what it's supposed to say, but yeah, he's a big deal. He has the same classification as you. That's right. Yep. Okay. But I would say we play different games. <laughs> different. <laughs> yes. I'm more like quick bruiser. I'm the guy that, you know, the guy that's making those fouls that aren't called fouls. That's me. Okay. Oh, okay. Add a touch of shooting in there. And, uh, and then Pat, Pat plays kind of big. He's a big dude. So big wingspan. He plays inside the key a lot, but uh, amazing shooter too kind of stretches if i had to compare him to somebody i don't know who i would like a physical three-point shooter okay yeah, yeah. so like uh, kevin durant <laughs> yeah kind of like kevin durant except add a bunch of muscle <laughs> except yeah i except. actually saw i saw kevin durant he was training during the uh the raptor series that they were playing in the playoffs he had that achilles injury so yeah. there's two pools that can adjust to seven feet or something in toronto and one was at the raptors facility and the other one was at the facility, the Olympic training facility that we train out of. Okay. So anyways, he came through. He had to use the, the treadmill. This guy's like a stick, man. I couldn't believe it. I, he looks so much thicker on TV. I was like, wow, you're way thinner than I thought. Oh, my goodness. You wouldn't believe it. Like seven foot tall and like 130 pounds soaking wet. Like, Yeah, he looks far bigger on television. Yeah, that, but that, that, that lets you know that so many of the guys around him are sticks. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's just uh, the, the build. Ball, though. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> yeah. No. Good. To yeah. Answer, to answer, he's ridiculous, man. Yeah. He's he's actually insane. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh shit. Cool, man. Right on, Kobe. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website www.prosportspodcasters.com. Because on the website you will find our sports blog, full podcast library access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our Insider Tips, Sponsor Giveaways, and Insider Newsletter. 
So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcasters experience, where no sport is left behind.